let's go and what will be the, this will be our fourth lesson from our little study in Ephesians. Um, fun fact about Ephesians, the, uh, the Apostle Paul is the author, of course, and Paul loves the phrase in Christ. This is a phrase that we've seen repeatedly in chapter one. And when I say in Christ, in him, it counts as well. In him, in God, in Christ. In fact, Paul uses the phrase in Christ about 200 times in the New Testament. And 30 of those are in the book of Ephesians, um, which is uh, a, a bit disproportionate for, for how much he uses it elsewhere. So he loads this book with the idea that we are in Christ, um, with the idea of what we have in Christ. And that's why we've been trying to open up our heavenly vault a little bit the last few weeks, the bank account of heaven. What is it that we have in Christ? And you can believe this to the extent that you believe in Christ. So if you believe that you are in Christ, then you can believe that the contents of your heavenly bank account are just are equally in Christ. If you don't really believe in Christ, you probably wouldn't bother coming to a Bible study repeatedly or watching these videos or listening often. And so it's probably not much of an argument for you. I got asked this week by someone about a sort of a, a, a worldwide figure in the scholarly world who recanted on his faith and and now goes out and debates Christian scholars. Uh, he was raised evangelical, and then when he got to Bible college, he became an unbeliever because he found out that we don't have the original text in Greek or Hebrew. Um, surprisingly, no one had preached that to him until he got to his undergrad work. That's a failure of the pulpit, in my opinion. Um, but once he got there and realized that we didn't have the originals, um, he went down a road of super deconstruction, where he deconstructed his faith all the way. I, I got asked about this, this man and this incident this week by a fellow pastor, and so what's your take on this? And I'm not smart enough to, to have a real good take, I don't guess, except because I don't know the man. Yeah, I don't, it's hard to have a take on somebody you don't know, but I do know the incident, and my thoughts were, well, if you have a, if you have a Christianity that holds to biblical inerrancy, and that's the foundation of your faith, then your faith is in trouble if biblical inerrancy is ever sh shaken in any way. So if in any way you think that the Bible was the finger of God is mistake-free and nothing contradicts anything else in the book, then if it can be shown to you that there are inconsistencies or, in, or errors or that everything in it is not literal and you built your faith on literalism and inerrancy, then yes, you're, you're going to lose your faith when those things fall down because the foundation was just knocked out from under your house. But if you believe in a resurrected Christ because you've had an encounter of faith, well, then you don't build your faith on the other structures that some build it on. So my response was, well, if um, it sounds like someone had built their faith on biblical inerrancy, why wouldn't they give up once they find out that's wrong? Um, I hope that you have had your own encounter with the resurrected Jesus. That to me is what makes you a believer in Christ, not your lifestyle, not your theology, not the biblical translation you use, not whether you're a literalist, a futurist, what your eschatology is or your baptismal creeds are. Um, do you believe in the resurrected Christ? Have you met him? Have you had an encounter with him in one way or the other? Or are you on a journey in which you are encountering the resurrected Christ? And I think if we would start there, then we could get away from the judgments of who belongs in and who's not. Paul doesn't give us a big, long laundry list of theology on what it means to be on how to get in Christ. 
Because when I say to you, Paul says 200 times we're in Christ, 30 of them in the book of Ephesians, we don't have that moment in Ephesians where he goes, let me show you how you weren't in him and then let me show you the, the, the formula that it takes to get in him. And why does he bypass that? And so that's a little bit of our journey tonight as we, as we title this particular lesson, Redemption and Forgiveness. Two more of the ingredients or the, the uh, items, rather, inside of our heavenly bank account. I put them together, and I do this for a very specific reason that will appear about midway through this lesson. But before we get to the reason, let me just say that I, I'm not, I don't want to drag out this first chapter to where it's just one idea per week if I can bring those ideas together. Uh, that's what I'm going to try to do. Let's read this idea from the 7th and the 8th verse of our first chapter of Ephesians. In Him, there it is, one of many. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. Redemption, first word in our title. The forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, second word in our title. According to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And I'll tell you, We're not going to deal with riches of His grace. We're not going to deal with it in the first chapter. We're going to save it for the second chapter. In that famous, by grace through faith we're saved, where Paul says we're going to be shown the riches of His grace in the ages to come. When we get to that, we're going to work on riches of His grace, what that meant to Paul, what it means to us, what it might mean for the future. So, for purposes of the lessons yet to come, we're not going to deal too much tonight with riches of His grace. I'll just say this. Paul believed that both redemption and forgiveness were gifts. Grace gifts, not earned. So that you could not be redeemed because of what you've done. You could not be forgiven because of what you've done. That's why he calls it riches of his grace. So my redemption isn't contingent on my actions. And my forgiveness isn't contingent on my continuous action. And so forgiveness of sins isn't something that happens because I react to my guilt or my shame. But forgiveness of sins is a done deal. And it's done according to riches. And he made it abound toward us in wisdom and prudence. And we'll, we're going to put that in with that second chapter as well. So let's concentrate a little bit on redemption and forgiveness tonight. And I want to start with redemption. We're just going to do them in order. Let's start with redemption and work our way to forgiveness. We're going to bring these two things together because I think it's the core of the way that Paul preached. And I say the way Paul preached, we don't know for sure what these guys sounded like, their inflections, their illustrations, but we do have their ideas through their scriptures. And we do have some written transcripts in the book of Acts. We're going to work with one of those from Paul. And I say we say this from the outset. There's not a singular way to preach the gospel. There's not a singular, there's not a magic statement. This is the thing that makes, this is the most important thing in the gospel above all other things. Gospel is good news. And good news encompasses a lot of stuff, particularly in regards to Christianity as far as I'm concerned. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like the gospel ebbs and flows Um, what's gospel today won't be gospel tomorrow. I don't mean that. But I do think that some things are better news to you than they are to you. (laughs) And it's because you don't live where you live. And you don't have her experience or his experience. And therefore, what you bring to the table is different than what she brings to the table. The same Jesus, but just as Jesus responded uniquely to his audience, he doesn't say the same thing to one woman that he says to one man, but it's good news to the woman and it's good news to the man. And therefore, there's no such thing to me as the perfect gospel presentation. The sermon that lays everything out in a row because 
you don't know what someone's going to need. So I, I like to say this, I don't necessarily have the definition of good news, gospel, good news. I just know it's never bad news. And so that's kind of how I land on that. Like, what do you, what's the gospel to you? Go, well, mm, I got 10 things I could tell you, but I'd leave out 100, but it ain't bad. So if it's bad, kick that out. And so when we talk redemption, we talk forgiveness. To me, it's bad news if it starts to link your effort in order to get it. It's no longer grace redemption. It's no longer grace forgiveness. Let's deal with redemption first. I want to take you to Hebrews 9. This is a passage, and I'm going to deal with 11 to 15, and I want to walk through this a little slow because I, want to, I, I, I know in the history of this room, four plus years of Tuesdays and one Sunday a month, I'm positive we've been in this text half a dozen times. We've probably worked this thing top to bottom. We haven't done a verse by verse in Hebrews, but that doesn't mean we haven't been here. And, and one of the reasons we would have been here is because of the eternalness of this passage, the, the fact that it speaks to the eternal redemption of the eternal spirit. So I want to I wanna work on that just a little bit with apologies that we've been here before and we will go back again, but it doesn't to me, it's no less exciting the 10th time around because of what these verses mean. Christ came as a high priest of good things to come with a greater and a more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. It, simply in the 11th verse, if you didn't have anything else past this to really help qualify this verse, Think about what you've just read. Christ came as a representative of things people couldn't yet see, things that had not yet come. The Jesus that was here was presenting to the world the voice of his Father, things that belonged in the invisible realm that had not yet come to pass, so the world would have a difficult time even understanding Christ and what he had to present, and therefore I think as we come to Christ through the scriptures, we're seeing the Jesus that was there 2,000 years ago. We then let that Jesus start to infiltrate the pages. He goes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we start to find him back here. The Genesis and the Isaiahs and the Psalms. kind of standing in the shadows. And we start to find him over here in the epistles and the revelation. And notice the longer you know him and the more you read of him, the more expansive the revelation gets about Jesus. How's that possible? Because Christ is always revealing the things to come. It's not just, this is why there's, there's only so much you can do if your faith is in the historical Jesus. So because I want to go find the source. I want to go prove where Jesus walked. I want to I want to see if the Shroud of Turin is really Jesus. I want to know where the swaddling clothes are. I, we want to walk the stone streets that Jesus walked. And if we can, we'll believe. And if we can't, we won't. You're going to always run into a, just a historical person. But that's not who we serve. We serve a risen Christ who spoke of things greater and more perfect, stuff not made with hands, stuff not even of this creation. So... That's why our, our understanding of Jesus starts in reading the Gospels, but it doesn't stop there. It starts there and then it grows with our walk. And 
Then he takes the blood, not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood. He goes into the most holy place once for all. This is to me one of the great phrases of the book of Hebrews. Once for all, bloodshed once for all in a world, in a Hebrew world where there was no such thing as a one-time bloodshed. There was repetitious bloodshed, bloodshed, bloodshed. Even, even if you were, <laughs> this is the wrong way to say this. This is not how they would have thought of it, but let's interpolate ourselves there. Even if you weren't doing anything wrong, because we tend to think the only time they shed blood is when they sin, but it wasn't. But let's just go with that. So even if you weren't doing anything wrong, you still had the Day of Atonement coming up where you had national bloodshed. And it was, to, it was an appeasement for things you hadn't done yet. For that which was to come. Which is why Christ's blood is shed one time, and he's speaking of things which are to come. Israel on the Day of Atonement would shed the blood, put it on the Ark of the Covenant, and it would forgive sins that were yet to come. It would cover them for the next year. I hope you can see what, why this is important. This is to help you for anyone who thinks forgiveness of sins lasts, the blood lasts till your next sin, right? I, I accept Jesus. His blood washes my sins away. I go out here and I sin. I have to accept his blood again to wash my sins away again. A Hebrew audience is not seeing it this way for this reason. You shed blood. You put it on the most holy seat. You put it on the, on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. That covers the sins for the next year of the nation. The author of Hebrews goes, here comes Jesus speaking of things which are not made with hands, things which are to come, things you can't see. He offers his blood once. What for? For that which is yet to happen. So the blood of Jesus was to cover everything out in front of it as well as everything behind it. That's pretty good news. It means Jesus doesn't die twice. It means that the blood works. And not only does it work, how long does it work? What quality is its work? Eternal redemption. So when Paul speaks of redemption in Ephesians 1, the working idea in a Jewish mindset was continuous bloodshed brings continually back to redeeming, redeeming, buying me back by blood. But in Christ, we're bought by the blood of Jesus one time for all people, eternal redemption purchased by Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. So then 13 if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies or makes holy or sets aside for use, it's the technical definition of sanctification, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's a little long. It's a little clunky. It ends with a question mark. It runs through comma after comma after commas. So let me try to help this way. If you touched a dead body, if it was a woman's time of the month, if you had just had sex, if you had been in a battle, if I'm naming off things that made you physically unclean in, in Israel and Judah, all of those things that we just, plus a bunch of others, made you unclean. And you were physically incapable of then being of service to the tabernacle or the temple. And you had an obligation under Torah to clean yourself, to wash yourself, not just with soap. It wasn't just go over, slap some water on your hands, 
but there was a ceremonial cleansing that involved the sprinkling of the blood of sacrificial animals, the sprinkling into the water so that the water was mixed with blood and the water in the blood then cleansed your outside flesh. You get a picture of that at Calvary when the spear goes into Jesus' side and the water and the blood come out, which is the birthplace of his church, a bride from his side. And so if that works, Hebrews says, if that works to clean your physical man, what would the blood of Jesus do to your spirit man? So if in the natural realm you had to put blood in water and then clean yourself and that made you physically clean, he goes, what would one shot of the blood of Christ do if administered by the eternal spirit? There's your second eternal. You have eternal redemption administered by the eternal Holy Spirit. So the spirit ever works. He's doing the job consistently and constantly. How much more would the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God so the blood redeems you from human consciousness and your own guilt, shame, and condemnation, which always tries to offer up dead works to a living God. Most of us were raised in Christian environments where we were taught to offer dead works to a living God. In other words, we were told if you'll do this and this and this, God will bless you, God will prosper you, God will fight for you, God will take care of your problems. If you go the other way and you don't do this or you do this, and we had all kinds of lists, then God will actively work against you. God will block you. God will curse you. God will harm you. This is why people think God is their enemy. Because we've preached this idea and taught this idea that we are at odds with a God who according to Hebrews is not at odds with us. The blood of Jesus Christ shed once for all to bring and enact an eternal redemption so that the activity of the eternal Holy Spirit could constantly cleanse our conscience from trying to pay God off. I got a bad conscience. I got to go pay God off. The Holy Spirit is in there splashing you over with the water of Jesus, the water of the Word going, stop this business. You don't have to pay God off of anything. You have an eternal redemption administered by the eternal Holy Spirit. But that's not all. 15, and for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant. And He did it by means of death because something has to die when a covenant is cut in order for the parties to receive the full benefits of covenant. For the redemption, there's our word again, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, so his death is reaching backward. According to the early part of this text, his death is reaching forward. Speaking of things not made with hands, things that have not yet happened, a redemption that reaches into the future. But he also reaches into the past. He reaches into the past for all of our failures, the things we've done wrong prior to the cross, those who are called may receive, and here's our third eternal, the promise of an eternal inheritance. And so in this one passage in Hebrews, you get the eternal redemption, the eternal spirit, the eternal inheritance. When I say eternal, do not simply think that which lasts forever, because that's a more of a modern usage of the word eternal, but think quality, a quality that is not of this earth, a quality that is of the heavens. So my eternal redemption is a redemption that doesn't look like earthly redemptions. The Holy Spirit is a spirit that doesn't move as the spirits of the earth move. My inheritance isn't like a simple, natural inheritance. Uh, 
This idea of redemption has been, has been bandied about for, since Paul starts to lay it down in the New Testament. Redemption is a word that stretches all the way back into the Old Testament. But what it really means has been the source of great contention. By the 4th century, um, Gregory of Nyssa probably wrote the most famous passage on basically a commentary on the redemptive power of the cross to ransom humanity from the clutches of the devil. So by the fourth century, the church had shifted its viewpoint. And that might not be right. It had codified its viewpoint, because I think you can make an argument from the New Testament that Paul might have agreed with that. That redemption was buying from the clutches of evil all of us. So that Christ is actually buying us back from the, from the forces of darkness. You've you got to make that determination on your own. I'm not going to try to help you land on what ransom is, so, but let's just stick with redemption for a moment. It's from the Greek word apolytrosis. Apolytrosis is a word that effectively is to be released because you've paid a ransom. And so the great question then for scholars has been, if God's doing the redeeming, and redeeming is a word that means a ransom was paid. Who did God pay the ransom to? I don't know if we're not getting a little lost in the weeds. Um, I realize it's quite possible they're simply using a term that indicates that you are no longer what you used to be. You are no longer under what you used to be under. I don't know if we do more or less damage creating these theological scenarios in which God is almost writing a check to evil. Um, that led Gregory to assume that God actually played the devil's game of deception on the cross. He hid the, the identity of Christ from the devil. Jesus dies on the cross, and only after he resurrects does the devil go, ah, that was God. I didn't get that. And maybe Gregory's right. It's an interesting way to look at it. And, but I... I don't know. I'm not going to try to land on that for you. I think we can actually just take what we know from the Bible and land somewhere a little safer. And what we know is, and I put a few up for you, and I'm not going to turn to all of them, but I want you to have them because, and this is not all of them, but it's a few. We even read a two of these already. We've been redeemed from our conscience. We no longer are enslaved by the thing that tells us we're guilty or tells us we're free or tells us we're pure or tells us that we owe God. We've been bought out of that. That's Hebrews 9.12. We've also been redeemed from our transgressions. Hebrews 9.15. All of my sin that held me in captivity to my guilt, I've been purchased out of. And so it, it cannot be held against me. I've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13. That one... Um, we've worked a lot on. Remember when Paul would write to the Galatians and say, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law for as, as it is written, curses every man that hangs on a tree. So when Jesus goes to the cross, everything that we could be put underneath by our breaking of the law is represented in the one who hangs at Calvary so that we are no longer guilty of the law. But then there's a couple from Revelation. Revelation 14, 3 and Revelation 14, 4, at least I think it's 4. It feels like it might be 5, but it's in that ballpark. We are redeemed from the earth, and we are redeemed from among men. And it seems as if the author of Revelation is saying 
that the purchase of God took us out of the system of the world and took us out of mere humanity. We are no longer bound by the first Adam and we are no longer defined by the systems of this world because we've been purchased from a system. And I do want to make sure you know that it's not just what you're bought out of, it's what you're bought into. Because he, he didn't just redeem you from, he redeemed you into. And Revelation 5, 9 says we've been redeemed to God. So that's important because we talk a lot about liberty. And we say, I've been freed, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. But we don't say what we're freed to. We just say what we're freed from. And so people like to say, I'm freed from religion. I'm freed. We even go so forth. I'm freed from having to read my Bible. I'm freed from the tithe. I'm freed from having to pray every day. And all of those things are technically true. Yeah, I mean, you're freed from a lot of things. But what are we freed into? Freed into the life of God and therefore freed to see Christ in the text. Freed to give into the things that matter or that bless us. Uh, free not to, but you can't be free from without being freed to. And that's part of our journey is not just to find out what I've come out of, but what I've been brought into. And so my redemption is marked by the idea that I'm no longer bound to the things I was bound to, but I've been released not into just wild liberty where I have no restraints. In fact, I, I think... Um, one of, the, one of the criticisms of a Christianity that focuses people on the love of God and the forgiveness of God, one of the criticisms that the critics scream the loudest about is that it's a, a, a gospel void of hell and consequences in the afterlife. And they'll say, you've, gotta, you've got to tell people about where they're going. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, the New Testament writers don't bother. Like Paul never mentions hell on any of He writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He never talks about hell, which is fascinating. I mean, if, if, if that's the crux of the gospel, is getting people to not go to hell, Paul was terrible at this. I mean, really, think about that. I mean, I know that's a, a bit sarcastic, but it's, I don't know if there's any truer statement than if you're going to teach people what it looks like to preach the gospel, and you're going to go to the guy that wrote two-thirds of it and said, I saw Christ, and this is what we should do, and he never once says, you should get saved, you miss hell, and go to heaven, be with Jesus forever. And yet, that's sort of how we preach. Get saved, you miss hell, go to heaven, be with Jesus forever. That, that sort of preaching has, has turned... You turn that page, and what you get on the next page tends to be an eschatology of escape in which we got to get out of here because ultimately this place is trouble and it's going to hell and you'll get there faster if you are out here in this thing and someday we're getting out of here. And I've, I've put a lot of thought and prayer into that over the years because I've preached that. I've preached both of those pages um, I've presented the gospel that way. I say gospel, most of the time it's not very good news. Um, but I'm at the place in my journey where I feel more and more like what Paul and the early church believed they were doing. If they're not going to preach to people that they need to turn or burn, then what are they doing? And everywhere they go, they keep presenting the life of a resurrected Christ. Like this is the life of God. Would you like it? And you're going, why would they even do that? I mean, who wants that? I think we really have to believe that what we have is the kingdom of God that is supposed to spread over the earth and actually make it better. 
Not better in the future, 10,000 years, better when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that'll be, but literally better now. Like if you followed Jesus, you could make a difference. Your life as a disciple of Christ could actually influence the world you live in. I think the early church believed that. I'm, I've grown to believe that. That if you loved your enemy and you prayed for your persecutor and you refused to pull the sword, you are so outside the system of man and the earth and humanity sold to God that you present an alternative life to the life people know that is so different, <laughs> that has nothing to do with dying in the flesh to go to a place when you die, although I truly believe we go to a place when we die. The dust goes to the dust and the spirit goes to the spirit and the spirit is limitless and eternal. The dust is not. So this is going to vanish, but this inside is not. And I do want all I can get in regards to where this goes and what happens. But I... But the early church presents all through the, the test. This is what we did with the series on the cross. This is what we did with the series on the church. They continue to present this gospel of Christ did all of this stuff. You can have it. You can participate in it now. Not just you can have it when you die. You can have it right now. And I'd like... I like to get to a return to that where we start to proclaim the redemption and forgiveness by the blood of Jesus so that people realize it is about breaking the vices that they're under in this world so that they can be at liberty in this world. Not just when they die, they get to go to heaven, but that they get to have liberty from the junk they're enslaved to now. Because if you're honest... You've been slaves to something and you know people who are enslaved to something. That's redemption in a nutshell. So let's land here. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We do not need a fresh application of the blood. My heritage was claiming the blood. Claiming the blood. Need, a new, need, need more blood over the doorposts and over the heart. And I just don't think we understood Jesus. It was like we had a Torah mentality with a Jesus bumper sticker. You know, we had Moses, but we had accepted Christ. And you try to smash those two things together. And the reality is, is Jesus' blood was shed once. He redeemed, he redeemed us by His blood. We don't need a fresh application, a fresh smearing of the blood, but we do need a fresh awareness of the extent of our redemption, lest we become enslaved again. To me, that's part of the gospel. That's why we keep telling people about Jesus. And I am a believer that if you, if, if you took away eternal rewards, heaven and hell, and I'm not taking them away because I, I believe the Bible tells us that there is all of us stand at the judgment seat of Christ and that that isn't just something that happens in this natural world. If you took all of that away, what would be your motivation of living for Jesus? And if you, come, if you struggle to come up with why you would keep living for Jesus, I want to, I hope you'll keep watching and listening because I hope over the course of time we can convince you that there's a resurrection, we'll try, it's going to take a revelation of the Spirit, but there's a resurrected Christ and He offers the life of heaven and that you can access that life now, 
because you have been enslaved to ways of thinking, enslaved to activities, enslaved to lifestyles, enslaved to mentalities, enslaved in your spirit, and Christ came to set you free. And you don't need a fresh coating of the blood. The blood's done. He's done his work. You do need a fresh awareness and a fresh revelation. And it takes constant activity on our part, not to get to heaven, but it takes constant activity on our part in holding on to the thing that he has given us, lest we go right back to where we were because we don't understand what's been paid for on our behalf. Paul said it this way to the Galatians in Galatians 5.1, stand fast. Therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage because you were entangled at one point in your journey. But now that you know Christ, you're no longer entangled in the yoke of bondage. Stand fast in your liberty. Stand fast in your freedom. Why do you have to stand fast in it? Because all of the stuff you were bought out of is, gonna, is still reaching for you. It's still trying to bring you back into its clutches. And your liberty is in Christ. Christ did it, not me. I place my faith in what Christ has done. Now, let me bring these together before we start talking about forgiveness. I think that we get some good, we get some pretty good glimpses of the way Peter preached in Acts. We get a Stephen sermon in Acts. We get a mini Philip sermon in Acts. We get a few Paul sermons. If you take Paul's writings and then you take Acts, you get, a, you get more from Paul than you get from Jesus. Just incredible. I mean, as far as actual spoken word and what he says. And that has shaped our Christianity, as, as no doubt it should. So I want to take you to one of those. And I want you to know that there's no universal way to preach according to the book of Acts. If you stack a Peter sermon and a Stephen sermon and a Philip sermon and a Paul sermon, they're all in Acts. You put them all up next to each other. They're going to have different elements and they're all going to lack stuff that churches think the gospel has to have. And they're all going to contain stuff nobody preaches anymore. And so at the end of the day, we go, well, maybe we have other things we have to say that they couldn't say. Maybe we should pay attention to some of the things they did say. And maybe, just maybe, some of this junk we're saying shouldn't be in there at all. I mean, that's, that's always an option, always a possibility. Maybe a couple of these things just got added in somewhere along the way by people that weren't reading their Bibles. And <laughs> I've been there. Um, so I want to glance at one. All right, here's Paul. From Acts 13, just a few verses, not the whole sermon. In fact, the lead-in is all Israel history, Israel history, Israel history, Israel history. And then he gets to this. When David had served God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. Now, look, up, look how Paul presents the resurrection. It's just the opposite of decay for Paul. But the one whom God raised from the dead... Did not see decay. Okay, so resurrection then in Christ, resurrection as Christ was so quick, the physical body doesn't see decay, but, but we don't argue whether or not it was the same body that went into the grave. Paul makes the counter argument in 1 Corinthians 15. says it's actually not even the same body. It's a heavenly body. It's a brand new form of reality. But he juxtaposed it against their, their best guy, David. David was a king, but kings of the earth die. They go down to the ground. They decay. So let me introduce you to another king. The kind of king who doesn't go down into the ground. The kind of king who does not decay. 38. Therefore, my friends, be caught. Therefore, because he's alive. Resurrected reality. If you think Jesus is alive, then this is my next statement, Paul says. I want you to know that through Jesus, 
the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, which is a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Whether you saw it or not, our title is in there. Paul doesn't use the word redemption, but he spells it out. Let's try it again. He, he actually does it in reverse. Forgiveness of sins. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. That's redemption. So Paul's gospel has two basic points. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. And this is the crux of his whole sermon. He builds it off a of resurrection. Because Christ isn't decayed. Because he didn't stay in the ground. Because he came alive. Therefore, I preach to you two basic tenets. Christ forgives you of your sins because Christ has set you free from your sins. And that leads me to this thought. Redemption and forgiveness go hand in hand. Can't have one without the other. If we were redeemed from something, but we were not forgiven, we would carry the lasting effects of what had bound us. This lingering guilt would tie us to our former captives. If God didn't forgive us, but just released us from our captivity, but did not relieve us from the guilt of our conscience, from the guilt of our own failure, it would be difficult for us to believe we were truly free because guilt would tie us to our old sin. Guilt would tie us to our failures. This is why we have to release people from condemnation and release people from guilt because if we keep them in guilt, they'll never know they are forgiven. They'll never even truly be free. You can't, this, is why, this is why most Christians you know aren't free. Because they don't, A, they don't know that they've been truly redeemed. B, and this one's maybe worse, they don't think they're really forgiven. They've got all these sins that they can't get forgiveness for. They know that theoretically they're forgiven, but they don't feel forgiven. They don't have the consciousness of forgiveness. And when you carry that with you, you are always tied to the things you did. Guilt ties you to the mistakes you made. If you can't receive the forgiveness for the mistakes you've made, you're always the mistake. And you're one sin away from making it again. And to be released into the liberty is to let go. So we can't preach redemption if we don't preach forgiveness of sins. And we keep preaching these like they're far off ideas. Jesus can redeem you from your sins and he can forgive you. He can redeem you means he can buy you back from whatever held you. And he can forgive you forever running in the first place. And then when we try to get people to qualify for it, we, ended up, we end up sounding secular. And here, here's what I mean by that. Because we are redeemed, we can receive forgiveness. In human relationships, this is a counseling fact. You take some psychology or some counseling classes, this is one of the tenets of counseling you're going to learn. If you've ever sat in counseling, you're going to learn that in human relationships, redemption is the act of working towards someone's forgiveness. That's what they'll teach you. You need to go work to, you need to go act out redemption. You've made mistakes in your marriage. You've made mistakes at your job. You've made mistakes in life. You're on the, we like to say this, the secular world says, you're on the road to redemption. What's that mean? The road to redemption is a journey. You work towards earning people's forgiveness. Work towards earning your spouse's forgiveness. Work towards earning your kid's forgiveness. Do what you have to do. 
Acknowledge it. Own it. Make prom- All the things that you have to do is a journey and a road. We don't get that message in the New Testament between us and God. That road to redemption stuff, that's secular. And you know what? There's a lot of truth to it in the way we have to deal with people. If I hurt you and I wrong you, I shatter a trust that we had that is not easy to pick back up. It's broken. It's in a thousand pieces. And the road to picking it back up is not quick. Because if you've ever been hurt, you've been wronged, you don't just pull that person back in immediately. If you've got any brains, you make sure they put in the work. It's kind of how we say it. We've taken that idea and we've transferred that into the church. And we think that's how it looks to get right with God. This is why we think people are on this some sort of this constant ladder of climbing up into God's good graces. We're all trying to earn our redemption. We're all trying to earn our forgiveness. We can't. The eternal redemption does not know your effort, your works. Why? Because it's a gift. It's a gift of uh, 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 it is a gift of God's grace, not according to man's wisdom, but according to God's wisdom and God's prudence. Now, take what you know and apply it. That's our journey in this Ephesians study. So we end right here. Take what you know from the early part of Ephesians and transform it, transfer it over into the latter half of Ephesians where Paul gives you stuff to do in the beginning and then tells you what to do with it in the end. So if you knew you were redeemed and you knew you were forgiven, Paul says, do this. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. That's a whole lot harder than it looks. Verse 29. Let nothing come out of your mouth that tears people down, but instead impart grace. Most of us could probably spend the rest of our lives working on that and still come up pretty short of Ephesians 4.29. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we'll do a little more work on it when we get there. I don't know how much we're going to go into the application verses with the intensity we do these so just in case we don't get there we don't near we don't really know in the world of biblical uh scholarship what paul thought the day of redemption was we don't know if paul's talking spiritually we don't know if paul thought that was a physical day um we we don't get to interview paul and say hey can you elaborate on that day of redemption business is that like a calendar event or is that like a one-time event is like a 10-time event what's that mean for us but what we what we do know is that The Holy Spirit seals us over for whatever God's redemption looks like. The Holy Spirit is eternal, according to Hebrews 9. He did the sealing, not you. So your redemption's a done deal. You've been bought. You've been purchased. You've been paid. If that's the case, that's how you are able to let no corrupt word. That's how you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's speaking that word into the people around you. But watch where Paul lands with this, 31-32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice you're no longer a part of that you've been redeemed out of it be kind to one another be tender-hearted and here it is because you can't do all the things you're freed to do if you don't receive the forgiveness of God and when you receive the forgiveness of God you'll forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you if you know you're redeemed then you're freed out from under all that junk I can't help it. That's the way I think. I can't help it. That's the way I was raised. Paul goes, you've been redeemed out of that. And then you give forgiveness out to the same measure that you've received forgiveness. Now, why, are we, why is it hard for us to forgive? Oftentimes because it's hard for us to receive forgiveness. 
If we receive the forgiveness of God through Christ, we become agents of giving that forgiveness out. So I would land here in this thought. If you are struggling with forgiveness, and you're struggling to give forgiveness to someone in your life, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I don't think it's my place because every situation is different and you know what your own pain and your own experience is. But I will say this from a New Testament perspective. I don't think you can give out what you haven't received. Okay. So if you haven't received the forgiveness of God, it's going to be difficult for you to forgive anybody. And to the measure that you have received is the measure by which you'll be able to give. Remember when Jesus said, press down, shaken together, running over will men give unto you. We thought that was money, but contextually that was whatever you give to other people gives back, it gives back to you. So if you judge not, he says, if you forgive, you get forgiveness. So all of those things are, as it's an abundance in you, it becomes an abundance in which you can give and that it's reciprocal. So as I offer forgiveness, I start to accept it for myself. As I accept it for myself, I start to offer it for others. So show me a Christian who struggles with forgiving somebody and I'll show you a Christian who, does, who also struggles with receiving forgiveness somewhere in their life. Because I think that's what Paul meant. Let's just say all of these things become easier as you know how forgiven you are. So part of your heavenly bank account, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you don't have to reapply that. You have to be vigilant to hold on to your, what you've been bought out of, lest you go back under the slavery of something, and you're forgiven. And if you're forgiven, forgive others. And if you're having trouble forgiving others, go back to a revelation knowing how forgiven you are. Redemption, forgiveness, part of the grace gifts of God. Let's pray. Let's just apply this and take this, take this simple prayers to the fa- so the Father will reveal to you what you need to see in this and the Father will show you how to give it to others. Father, simple prayer tonight. Show me redemption in the areas I've been bought and paid for. Sometimes the best way to see it are the areas that I've let myself slip back underneath the control of something else. And a lot of that is because I haven't paid attention to the finished work of Christ and what you've done on my behalf. And the other is forgiveness. We all struggle with it, Lord, and we almost always struggle with it because we struggle with receiving it first from you. Help us to be good receivers of forgiveness, have a revelation of forgiveness so that we can be forgiving people. It's the heartbeat of our Savior. May it be ours as well. In Jesus' name, amen.